Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you for this beautiful morning you've given to us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all of your attributes. Things we can always count on, we can always rely on. Your never-changingness, your immutability, your providence, your sovereignty, your love, your care, your, for your fatherhood over us in leading us and guiding us and convicting us and teaching us. All these in different attributes that are just who you are. We thank you for your word that reveals all of these truths about who you are and what your plan is and what your plan is to save us and how we can be a part of your family and, and have the hope of eternity with you. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time this morning, that your spirit would go forth and we'd all leave this place a little bit different than when we first came in. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are the strangest methods of cleaning different items and places in your home. Maybe some of us will learn something today. Uh, if you have a weirdly shaped glass item, like a vase that has, you know, the narrow top and, and sort of a, a bulb uh, bottom to it, and you just can't fit your sponge in who's tried? You try to fit your sponge in there, but it just won't, and there's all gunk in the bottom, and you just can't get to it. Uh, there is a natural way of cleaning it. Fill it with a handful of uncooked rice, a squirt of dish soap, and some warm water. If you then shake it really hard, you get a sparkling clean vase when you rinse it out. I'd never heard that before. Harris is laughing at me over there. If you, if you always seem to end up with streaks on your windows, no matter how many times you wipe them, there is a solution to that. Make a solution of one part white vinegar and four parts water, spray it on your windows, and then wipe them with coffee filters. The very fine fibers in the coffee filters apparently don't leave any streaks. If you have trouble removing all the pet hairs off of your furniture, try taking a pair of rubber dishwashing gloves and wetting them a little bit, and then rubbing them all over the surfaces. Apparently, when you wipe these over your furniture, all the pet hairs stick to the gloves like a magnet. Don't throw away your banana peel the next time you eat a banana. You can use it to polish up leather surfaces. The oils and texture of the inner part of the peel act as a mild abrasive to polish up the leather. This last one is perhaps the weirdest one I came across. If you have an antique that's made out of wood or you have any wooden furniture that needs to be freshened up, look no further than what all of us already have in our fridges. If you apply a layer of mayonnaise to a wood surface, the oils in it will moisturize the wood and when rubbed with a cloth, polish it up and even remove those stubborn water stains, you know, that your friend left by putting a glass on without a coaster. It'll even remove those stubborn water stains you have not been able to get off of that wooden furniture. 
So again, maybe we all learned something, uh, at least one new way of cleaning something, especially in a more natural way and without the use of extremely toxic chemicals. In talking about cleaning and washing, Jesus uses the action of him washing his disciples' feet at the last Passover meal that he observes with them before his death that we talked about last week as a springboard to teach them about spiritual cleanliness. And in our passage this morning, Jesus talks both about a one-time cleaning of us as well as ongoing cleaning of us. Last week, we discussed at length about the humility that Jesus portrayed in very real ways. If you remember, during this Passover meal that Jesus observed with his disciples, after which Jesus would be the literal and physical fulfillment of the sacrificed Passover lamb, he made himself as a household servant. Not only did he make himself look like a household servant by removing his outer layers of clothing and girding up his common tunic, but then Jesus did the unthinkable for who was seen, at the very least, as an esteemed rabbi, much less the Son of God and the King of the universe, to do. He washed his disciples' feet. All of this was so bizarre and inconceivable to the disciples, that Simon Peter just cannot wrap his head around it. Simon Peter is sort of like the guy who we really all are (laughs) in our hearts and in our minds. And he just cannot wrap his head around it. Peter had already made his declaration of faith to Jesus, telling him, you are the Christ the son of the living God. So Peter knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows he is the Messiah, the Christ, and the son of God. Peter knows who Jesus is. So to see Jesus demean and lower himself to this societal status was something he was having a hard time with. So when Jesus makes his way over to Peter, we see Peter's response in the first verse of this morning's passage. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be picking up in verse 6. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 13, verse 6, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read. So he came to Simon Peter... He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? According to one biblical scholar, in John's record of this, in the original Greek, the emphasis is placed on the word for you. We can imagine ourselves being in the same room as what is happening here and see Peter's facial expression and hear him say this like, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, he's voicing it like, Jesus, you and I both know you're the Son of God and the Messianic and everlasting King, and you're really going to wash my feet? We can see the confusion with Peter's first response. In a minute, we'll see this confusion turn into confused antagonism, which most of us will be guilty of uh, when we're confused about different things. In in between these two 
responses is Jesus' answer to Peter's confusion. The answer is this. You don't understand now, but you will later. Verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. After Jesus is arrested, later that same night, after he's put on trial, after Peter denies knowing Jesus three times, after Jesus is tortured and humiliated, after he's nailed to a cross, and not until after Jesus is even resurrected from that death would Peter understand what was happening right before his eyes at that moment. In Peter's mind, this was just something that didn't make any earthly sense for God the Son to do. All Peter knew was what the culture and society around him taught him and showed him his entire life. That's all he knew. All Peter knew his entire life was that if you had a higher societal status, that gave you the right to be superior to everyone else and live a life of superiority. Even Peter's Jewish religious leaders, for all their teaching on humility, still jockeyed for the best and most honorable positions at banquet tables. So again, what Peter was witnessing was something that did not make any earthly sense for God to do. You may be going through a season of your life where you're confused. What is happening in your life or what has happened in your life doesn't make any earthly sense for God to be allowing or doing. It goes against everything we've been taught and showed by our surrounding culture and society. Or it goes against everything we think should be happening. But God does not work according to what makes sense to us. He works according to His orderly plan that He determined before He even created the universe. His plan and what God does does not need to make sense to us in our humanity. I'm going to say that again. His plan and what God does does not need to make sense to us in our humanity. And that's okay. We need to understand all that. We, oh, we, we don't need to understand all that God allows or does in our lives. All God calls us to do as his children is to trust him. That's all he calls us to do, to trust him. What we do know is what Romans 8.28 assures us of. And we know, we are confident that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the one thing we do know. So while it may not make any earthly sense, we can still trust that what God is allowing or doing in our lives, he will use for our good. It may take time for us to see it, 
like Peter, like Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you will later. It may take some time. We may not ever see it or understand what's happening this side of heaven. But in any case, what we can do is we can trust God that God is good and that what he's doing is good. Peter didn't just take Jesus' words at face value and leave it at that, though. He's just like any one of us. In fact, he doubles down on his confusion and lets it spill over into antagonism. I don't think Peter meant to be disrespectful or, or anything like that towards Jesus. But since he couldn't understand what Jesus was doing at that time, he refused to let Jesus do it to him. First part of verse 8, Peter said to him, Never! Not just, let's wait a few minutes. He says, Never shall you wash my feet. Instead of simply trusting that Jesus knew what he was doing, Peter wanted to cut him off and prevent Jesus from doing it anymore. It's almost akin to saying, what are you, crazy, Jesus? You've got to knock this off. This isn't something you should be doing. We see a similar exchange between Peter and Jesus back in the same chapter of Matthew 16, in which Peter made his declaration of faith, which we already looked at on the screen here, uh, to who he knew and believed Jesus was. When Jesus started teaching that he would be killed, we read this, and yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Back at that point, Jesus responded to Peter strongly with, Get behind me, Satan. Imagine Jesus saying that to you. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. See, that's what it really came down to. Both in that experience and in the experience we're talking about this morning, and very often in our experiences of confusion in our lives, by Peter focusing on what he thought could happen, or not happen, or should happen, or what he wished would happen, or not happen, the focus was entirely on what? On himself, on his thoughts, on his wishes, on what he thought could or should or couldn't or shouldn't happen. In that way, Peter was thinking and acting in the same way Satan did, as we talked about last week, entirely based on self-centeredness and self-promoting pride. Peter was thinking and acting in the same way in this morning's passage. He wasn't thinking about what God's purpose in what was happening was. He was only thinking about what he thought about it and what he thought should be happening or shouldn't be happening. How often do we respond to what God is doing in our lives in the same way? We're only thinking about how we're feeling about it or what we're thinking about it or what we wish should happen or could happen or would happen. We're not thinking about what God's purpose is in it or what God's 
thoughts and feelings and purpose is in it and what he's doing in it. So again, we have to take the focus off of ourselves and how we feel about the circumstances and what we're thinking about it and take a step back from the situation and rather ask ourselves the question, regardless of that, what could God's purpose be in what I'm going through right now? Take a step back from whatever the circumstances are and say, regardless of anything that is happening right now, what could God's purpose be in what I'm going through right now? What could he be doing in this? What could he be breaking me from? What could he be teaching me? How could he be growing me through this? How can he use this situation for me to minister to somebody else in a similar situation? It's okay to feel certain ways about situations. We're only human. But we always have to look beyond them and look beyond those emotions and see what God's purpose might be in them, no matter how confused we are about the situation. Jesus uses Peter's refusal to just surrender himself to what Jesus was doing, no matter how confused or even antagonistic he was about, he was, he was about it. He uses all of it as a teaching moment. Second part of verse 8. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. What's Jesus getting at here? This is another case we have in Scripture where Jesus is speaking in spiritual language and about the spiritual realm and the person he's interacting with or the group of people he's interacting with merely are thinking about it in physical terms. We see this misunderstanding all throughout the Gospels and we've seen it especially all throughout the Gospel of John, right? How many times have we seen that come up? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the washing that Jesus is referring to here is him spiritually cleansing people. That's why Jesus says to Peter that if Jesus doesn't spiritually cleanse someone, then he or she has no part with him. You've heard this time and time again, but it's not enough according to God's word to just believe in God and you get to go to heaven. Faith in Jesus as God and the Savior from sin is the foundation, but it must lead to repentance or turning away from sin and turning to Jesus as King and living for Him from that point forward. We must take Jesus' shed blood as the basis for our forgiveness of that sin and His blood cleansing us from that sin. 1 John 1.7 tells us, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That repentance is then symbolized by baptism in water, which we witnessed a few weeks back as the image of being washed clean from sin. 
Paul declared to his fellow Jewish brothers, now why do you delay? Get up. Let's go. Be baptized and show that your sins have been washed away by calling upon his name. But again, Peter misinterprets what Jesus had said in a physical understanding and responds with this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, oh, well, in that case, I don't want you to just wash my feet, but these other important parts of my body too. Let's get it all done at the same time. As noted by one biblical scholar at this point, Peter understands enough to know that he knows he wants to be joined with Jesus. So the line of reasoning (laughs) is that if a little bit of washing, a.k.a. his feet, would join him with Jesus, then more washing would, human reasoning, join him even more with Jesus, right? (laughs) As we've all heard, Peter's faith is strong. But he often doesn't really think about what he would say before he would just blurt words out. And I think all of us can see ourselves in Peter. Jesus turns Peter's misinterpretation back around to the spiritual realm with this truth teaching. Verses 10 through 11. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Before we get to Jesus' explanation of spiritual cleansing, let's cover the very end of verses 10 through verse 11, and then come back to that. If Jesus uses the term clean in a spiritual way, then the one betraying him, in other words, Judas Iscariot, is not spiritually clean. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Judas had his feet physically washed, but he wasn't spiritually clean. Obviously backed up by the facts that, as we already talked about last week, Judas was open to Satan planting his own idea of betraying Jesus into Judas's mind and heart. And in only a few verses, we'll read that Judas was even open to Satan possessing him. What does that tell us? Judas is not converted. Judas did not have faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, nor faith in Jesus paying for his sins. And it's because of this absence of faith that Jesus declares Judas not spiritually clean and not eligible to enter heaven. That's the simple, in a nutshell, fate that awaits every person who never repents of their sin and comes to Jesus as the Savior of that sin in order for them to wash them clean from it and commit to live for him as king with the rest of their days. That's it in a nutshell. As we've looked at time and time again in God's word, we are all born into sin, 
And once we cross over that age of accountability, if we continually reject Jesus as the salvation from our sins, we will simply die in our sins and receive what we all justly deserve for those sins, eternal banishment from God's presence in a literal place called hell. Like the simple statements regarding Judas Iscariot, that's simply what we will get if we never turn to Jesus for his cleansing of us from our sin. We referenced 1 John 1.7 already this morning, but what the Apostle John says next in that letter lines up perfectly with the description of those who think they're automatically clean because their sins aren't that bad but in reality, remain spiritually unclean and will also die in their sins, earning them hell. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. It's really very simple. So now let's come back to what Jesus says about the spiritual cleansing of those of us who do turn to Jesus in repentance of our sin and ask him for forgiveness of those sins. As noted by one biblical scholar, what the first part of verse 10 is teaching is referencing two types of cleansing. These are referenced by continuing to use the images of washing the physical body. The first one mentioned is that of bathing the entire body. He says, uh, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. That's the first one that is mentioned, the one of bathing the entire body. In this way, once an entire body is washed clean, then there is only ongoing, everyday washing of feet. In other words, in the spiritual understanding, there is a one-time cleansing from sin by turning to Jesus in repentance and taking him as both Savior and King. That salvation given to a sincere heart is what gives us the required and crucial spiritual cleansing to give us rescue from hell and entrance into heaven. All of us, all of who we are, is washed clean by the blood of of Jesus. And contrasting Judas Iscariot with Peter, Jesus tells Peter that it's because of his faith in him that he is indeed spiritually clean. What the rest of this verse teaches is that none of us can just say a prayer of repentance at one point in our lives and then go on with the rest of them doing whatever we want, thinking whatever we want, and focusing our lives on whatever we want. As we'll see in a second, it doesn't work that way with Jesus. We either give him all of us, or we're giving him none of us. After our whole spiritual body is spiritually cleansed, there is daily maintenance of that cleansing. In this image, one couldn't have their whole body cleansed, and then just dance around in puddles of mud every day and think, well, I took that bath one time, so I'm still good. Don't try that. <laughs> Obviously, in this image from this time period, dudes would still need to wash their feet at the end of every day, or their wives would not let them back in the house. 
We've referenced 1 John 1.7, and then we referenced 1 John 1.8, and now we come to the Apostle John's description of this ongoing daily cleansing, like the daily washing of one's feet. He writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, so that he will forgive us our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are some very beautiful words, aren't they? To us sinners. As has been pointed out, this daily confession of sin to God goes hand in hand with what John says in the next chapter of this same letter. When he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Obviously, we all know, we all will never be perfect and will still fall to sin until the day we die or Jesus comes back for us. But when we do sin, John reassures us that we have an advocate. We have a lawyer, in other words, to intercede for us before God the holy judge. We need only come to Jesus and confess those sins to him on a daily basis as our advocate. What does God's word promise us when we do that? That God is both faithful and righteous and will keep to his promise that if we confess our sins to him, he will both forgive us of those sins, and perform that daily cleansing of us from those sins as one would wash their feet at the end of each day. That's not to say that we should just go out and do the things we know are sin all the time whenever we want to, nor live in a continual state of sinfulness. For John already said that we should seek to not sin. But if and when we do, we have a continual advocate there for us, Jesus, who not only provided the initial salvation and forgiveness of sin, but stands for us to provide the daily forgiveness of our sins when we confess those to him. We talked last week about how the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as our great high priest who knows our weaknesses, experienced everything we can experience, yet without sin. So we can be assured that he knows how we're feeling on any, in any given situation and what we need from him in those situations. But we also have to remember who Jesus is also is as our high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was the one who would pay for the sins of the whole nation of Israel with the atonement sacrifice blood. It wasn't his, it was the blood of an animal sacrifice. He would be the representative of the people and their sins before God. That's what, once again, the Apostle John refers to in 1 John 2 Two, the very next verse. And he himself, he's not only the advocate, he himself is also the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
The word propitiation means the sacrifice of paying for our sins. Jesus is both the sacrifice for our sins and the high priest that we come to to confess our sins and receive daily forgiveness and cleansing from those sins. Biblically, there is no need for a human priest to be the one we confess sins to, and they act as a representative between us and God. We already have one, the high priest named Jesus. And when we come to him to confess our sins, we know he will always be faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from those sins. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace, like we talked about last week, described in Hebrews. In the first place, because of what our great high priest has done for us and being the sacrificial payment for our sins. We can rejoice and be grateful for him being the one-time atonement sacrifice for our sins and we can rejoice and be grateful for him being our advocating high priest to confess our sins to him on a daily basis. So let us worship Jesus for all these ways he is our high priest. Let us worship him for being our perfect and sinless sacrifice of payment for our sin. If you have never taken Jesus as the payment for your sin and come to him in repentance as your Savior and King, do so today. And if we have received the whole body washing of salvation from sin, and we're not already doing this, let us get into the practice of daily washing from sin. That shows a holy reverence for God's righteousness, and it shows faith growth, and it shows spiritual fruit. I want to end our time with these verses we've been referencing, which are a summary of this morning's passage. We already read through them, but here they are again. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the second part of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and it mainly being honed in on Jesus' exchange with Simon Peter here. Peter's response and sort of knee-jerk response and Jesus using it as a teaching moment to not only teach Peter and the other disciples around the table that night, but to teach us this morning too about spiritual cleanliness and both that one-time washing of the whole body, but also the ongoing uh, spiritual cleansing of our sins. Every day confessing those to Jesus, knowing he is our advocate before the Father, and knowing that because of that, God will forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from those sins. We thank you for all of these promises. We don't want to take one of them for granted. We might have heard this over and over and over again. It might have lost some of its power. But Lord, let us not 
take this for granted ever because, because it is who you are and what you do and how you relate to us that we have any hope, that we have any forgiveness, that we have any hope of eternity with you. So Lord, let us praise you and worship you because of that and for that. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.